Medicine is a particularly important venue for the application of AI technologies. Much ink has been spilt over considerations like bias and other limitations of AI systems in their applications for medicine. However, a number of researchers and technologists are building companies that promise to improve the quality and effectiveness of patient care. My guest today is Brigham Hyde, co-founder and CEO of Atropo Health. His background includes multiple ventures and research faculty positions. Atropo's focus might look a bit unsexy, but it's very important. Doctors often look to clinical studies and past experience to guide interventions for patients. But clinical studies are fundamentally limited in that study participants might not look like a particular patient. You'll hear how Atropo aims to solve problems like these and enable medical professionals to deliver personalized care for their patients. Brigham and I also spoke about some of the opportunities for generative AI in healthcare. This is the Gradient Podcast. I am your host, Daniel Bashir. If you aren't already subscribed to The Gradient, go ahead and follow us wherever you're listening to this podcast. You can also follow us on Substack, where you'll get notifications whenever we release a new podcast episode, article, or newsletter. But now, without further ado, Brigham Hyde. Brigham, your current work is in this really interesting space right now of the intersection between AI and medicine. And it does seem like there are a lot of opportunities for us right now, both to apply AI and technology more broadly to the space. But I'd love to hear a little bit about how your particular journey to doing what you do now looked. Yeah, um, it's an exciting time for our space, for sure. And while there's there's some hype, I also think there's a lot that's real. You know, for me, this really goes back 15 years uh, with the work I've done in healthcare. I'm currently CEO and co-founder at Atropo Health. And we were spin out of Stanford University. My co-founder is Nikam Shah, who's the chief data scientist at Stanford Healthcare, and Sarv Gumbar, uh, who helped build the technology and service in, in his lab originally. And, and now is our chief medical officer. Going back, you know, uh, I've been uh, building businesses in healthcare data and healthcare technology for most of my career. Prior to this, I was at a company called Eversana, which is a life science commercialization firm. I led our data analytics platform there, including our AI initiatives, really there about predicting uh, patient behavior, physician behavior outcomes uh, in that in that vein. Um, before that, I was a partner at a, a venture fund on the West Coast called Symphony AI, uh, which is the brainchild of Ramesh Wadwani. Um, we started that fund. Uh, our fundamental belief was that AI technology as a platform layer was going to have a significant impact in the business to business setting. I focused on healthcare uh, and ended up leading the investment uh, in and founding uh, Concert AI in the oncology real world data space. Um, and building sort of our uh, AI platform layer there, 
uh, both for predicting patient outcomes, but also optimizing for things like trial recruitment uh, and other pieces of that. Um, and before that, um, I was chief data officer at Decision Resources Group, which has since sold to Clarivate. I'd say and this is in sort of the mid 2000 teens. Uh, we were really focused on building um, really great data assets there, particularly on the claim side, a bit on the EMR side that can be used to drive insights, but also serve as the basis for the coming prediction layer. And I would, I can tell some stories in that time, but you know, uh, it was a little bit more hobby shop than it is today. Um, but doing some of the early stuff, and I, I have a, a background as a PhD in clinical pharmacology which nobody's ever really sure what that is. But <laughs> I basically say most people with that degree um, uh, focus on clinical trial design development. They go on to work for regulatory agencies like the FDA or for pharma companies um, or in research at the bench. Um, and we had a really heavily sort of statistical training in that approach. And so think of this in the 2000s. Um, you know, AI wasn't something we talked about. I'd say machine learning was sort of uh, the people in the field would sort of feel like machine learning was a little bit of a winter at that point. And this is really before the rise of cloud computing and in the healthcare space before electronic medical records were existed at any scale, right? So we didn't have much to train on and we didn't have the systems and compute infrastructure to really drive big modeling. But, you know, we were doing uh, a lot of uh, inferential statistics uh, that are really, you know, sort of the basics that, you know, lead down the road of machine learning. So I just started to believe that those techniques and with the coming wave of data, both from the completion of the human genome as well as electronic medical records, we're going to lead to big opportunities. And, and I've been building businesses as entrepreneur, operator, um, investor ever since in that space. And I'm kind of all three at Atropo today. Since you've been in this space for a while, as you mentioned with Symphony AI, with Concert AI kind of peeking at it in various different ways, can you tell me about some of the particular challenges that the healthcare space faces right now in terms of, one, I think some of the low hanging fruit, the barriers to improvement, but then also what is difficult for people like you who want to invest and build in the space right now? Yeah, I'd, I'd say, you know, five to 10 years ago, the main issue was high quality and scalar training data. Um, there just wasn't a lot around. There was also issues where um, a lot of that data um, was problematic, you know, in every aspect. Um, it has high complexity, high cardinality. It has a lot of errors, uh, missingness, all these things. And and yet, for prediction purposes, all the medical use cases tend to have really high precision requirements. If you think about models, precision versus recall, precision is the problem in medicine. You know, you can't predict uh, that a drug's going to have a certain output or effect on a patient and be wrong. It's not acceptable, right? Whereas if we're in a different industry where I'm trying to optimize, I don't know, travel recommendations or, you know, uh, findings on the web, that's more of a recall problem than it is a precision problem. So though having scarce and sometimes bad data, right, and then having a really high precision bar is a significant challenge when it comes to developing uh, AI ML models. So I think, you know, getting hold of the data was the problem for a while. 
I don't think that's the problem anymore um, for a number of reasons. It just, you know, we're, we're 15 years on from uh, meaningful use, which was the act that Congress put through that mandated electronic medical records. You know, there are hundreds and hundreds of millions of patient records around that you can uh, access and train on. The uh, quality of that data has improved. It's enrichment through things like NLP or data curation, even through things like linkage uh, between data sets. Uh, companies like DataVant and Health Verity have advanced the ability to do that. So getting good training data is less of the problem, although still at the edges is where a lot of companies focus. You know, people in imaging, for instance, companies like Page AI in pathology and other places where you can get a hold of this this really rich data that's hard to aggregate still there's there's value there but i tell people entrepreneurs and and you know even when i talk to students like you got to kind of assume the day is going to be there now um there was a i would say a bit of a delay over the last five years as we all tried to figure out what to do about privacy but honestly i, I feel like that has been handled to some extent right number one with most of this data in the cloud securely now, the potential of doing federated models, uh, even just the whole <laughs> basis of how Snowflake is oriented, um, is all designed where data possession is less of a problem. You don't have to ship data around. And, you know, I'm old enough to remember the first EMR data set I bought was mailed to me in a FedEx box on a hard drive that I had to like lock in a closet, you know. Also, um, you know, the idea of HIPAA and identity, you know, there's a number of ways to deal with that now. I mentioned, you know, data van, health therapy, others like that. There's also great tools for sort of removing identifiers using NLP approaches. And, you know, you can go through statistical determination, you know, Jamie Blackboard of Mirador helped create this framework where um, I think we all feel like the risk of that can be appropriately handled. I, I think, Outside the U.S., they still struggle with this a bit with the GDPR overlay in Europe in particular, but we're getting there um, is what I would say. So, so we're sort of at this point where it's like you can get data. There's a lot of it. It's in the cloud and computable. Identity has been handled and federated models are available. So right now, you know, the potential for uh, training uh, really exciting uh, AI and ML approaches on top of that, I, I think – you know, those tools are becoming available. The platform companies of the last five years, Concert AI, that was one of the things we were, was let's create that, you know, AI ML layer. Um, you know, those companies are maturing. So I, I think, you know, your opportunity to develop a wave of predictions is uh, is happening right now. I, I think where that is hitting the wall a little bit is around, okay, so I always tell a story about sepsis algorithms. Okay, so like, Let's imagine a health system and they've developed their own sepsis algorithm and a pharma company has a sepsis algorithm and a payer has a sepsis algorithm. And there's all these algorithms like fighting it out in space. It's like uh, the, the song that always comes to my head is like the flaming lips, uh, Yoshimi battles the robots. It's like just imagine somewhere like recommendations fighting each other. And what that's creating is a problem of like you're a physician. And you're getting alerts from all these different algorithms. It's like the over alerting problem, you know? So like the channels where you distribute insights and actions, that plumbing, there's a lot of companies working on that right now, but that plumbing is really critical. And then thinking about user behavior on the back of that. So uh, Nigam at uh, Stanford, my co-founder, he developed a method where 
there was a whole period where I was like, well, do we have to be transparent about what's in our AI model and how it's trained? Or is it a black box? And he developed a system which is just thumbs up, thumbs down. Did you like this prediction or not? <laughs> was it useful to you? And to some extent, when you're talking about AI, it's impossible to be fully transparent. Although I think there's uh, things you can do to sort of establish provenance of training, determine where biases are, almost like a, a USDA report on the model so you understand what you're looking at. But ultimately, the question is, are you going to use a recommendation or not, right? Because there's still a human at the other end of this, a position in many cases, who's going to have to take an action. And, you know, how do we determine which algorithms win, I guess, is going to be a big, big part of this next phase. The interpretability question you brought up there is quite interesting because I know that a few years ago there was quite a lot of debate in the AI ethics community and especially in looking at areas like healthcare. Well, if there, an al- if there is an algorithm that is making a decision on somebody's behalf and that decision is going to have a meaningful impact on you, we might like to know exactly how that is working. But I do remember specifically somebody in the AI healthcare space had a pretty different take on this. And I think it's kind of similar to what you mentioned in that we probably do care about interpretability to an extent, but so long as our AI system is delivering good patient outcomes, that is what we care about at the end of the day. I'm firmly in that camp because I also just don't think it's practical to describe to somebody exactly how a model is working now. It just, you know, you can look at predictive features and, you know, roll out different charts that show that, but I find people have a hard time even understanding that. Um, and inherently, th- this is the one of the issues. These models are supposed to learn and evolve over time, right? They're training to an outcome ultimately. And so even if you had a description of a, an algorithm and how it was working, it could change tomorrow. Right. And what we should be judging them on is the outcomes they create, the actions they inform. So I, I sort of fundamentally agree with that. Now, let me just, from an atropo perspective, let me just describe where we sit next to this. So back to my sepsis algorithm. Okay. So I've got a, uh, a signal comes up that this patient is at high risk of sepsis. Okay. Good to know. Right. I've been flagged. What am I doing about that? Right. And the question of what I do about it, yeah, you might change things like monitoring or you might think about a different treatment, but oftentimes like post-risk assessment, right, or opportunity assessment from an algorithm, you need evidence in medicine for the next action, right? And the algorithm is not providing that. And so our report, we call a prognostogram, which is designed as sort of a point of care e-consult service. So doctor can ask a question like, I have a patient at high risk of sepsis. Which of these treatments should I select for them? We'll actually do more basic inferential statistics. We just rerun the outcome study. Say patient or group A versus group B or treatment A versus treatment B, and we'll produce a whole PDF report. It's sort of so non-sexy in the AI sense, but it's also really critical because what you actually need is point evidence on a decision. That's also super transparent down to biases and, you know, the study population, the statistical methods, like all that run. And we're finding opportunity as sort of a hinge next to the prediction algorithm. So, you know, imagine you're in population health, right, at a health system. 
and you've got models all over the place predicting risk or you know too much cost for a certain patient population then we've had our users tell us this like yeah those algorithms are great at finding me the dots in the upper right i need to do something about but it doesn't tell me what to do with them and so what they've been doing is they call the physician treating that that risky patient and they say hey you know you're at high risk the doctor goes cool what do you want me to do (laughs) right and they have nothing to say and that's where we jump in. So when you identify risk with algorithms, great. Right next to that, evidence for what to do, you know, is where we think Atropo steps in. There's other ways we use AI and ML in our stack, which I can talk about. But we also just think like medicine in general lacks evidence, right? We know that most patients are excluded from most clinical trials and clinical trials inform the guidelines for care. So most of the people you're treating would have been excluded from the very trials that inform their care. So we need more point evidence, you know, in the form of observational research. And so our whole superpower is that we do that extremely fast, right? And we'll produce that study in about a day. And typically those studies that we produce in other firms' hands, at firms I've started a concert, that's two months to do a study like that. We're able to do it fast, which enables it to work at the point of care and act as that hinge to the predictive algorithm. Right. So the problem you're solving here, as you've begun to lay out, is I maybe have a predictive algorithm that I've been using already, or at some point I've decided we have a problem with this patient of some sort. And now we are tasked with taking a next action. Do we deliver a treatment? Do we continue monitoring this? And at that point, I have to figure out based off of a set of evidence. And this part is really important, as you've brought up, because I'm dealing with a very specific patient here. And this is a patient who may or may not have been included in critical trials about the interventions I'm considering. I need to make the decision that is right for that specific patient. And so the question here then is, how do I find the right information about what has worked for people who closely approximate my patient so that I can figure out which of these interventions is going to be most effective for the goal that I'm trying to achieve. Yeah, exactly. Let, let me stick with sepsis, although it's not the perfect example here I can give others, but let's just stay with that. Let's say I've got an inpatient, the algorithm that's you know AI-driven that's predicting sepsis risk flags it for this patient. What do they do typically? Well, they're going to go to their treatment protocols and their treatment guidelines for patients at high risk of sepsis, and they're going to look up the treatment recommendations. Well, what if this is a 75-year-old patient? We do, we do a lot of work in elderly care, bizarrely, because elderly people are excluded from clinical trials. They're just not studied in an effective way. So they might have gone to the guideline, and there's a publication on treatment A or treatment B that's backing that guideline. But you look at the trial and the 75-year-old would have been excluded. So now we've got a situation where we're going to use a trial that excluded this patient to inform care on them. Wouldn't it be better if I could ask question, okay, of patient-level data, EMR data, treatment A, treatment B for the 75-year-old female with this background or these other attributes who's at high risk of sepsis, which thing should we use? And that's where we step in and we can produce that personalized evidence back to the point of care extremely fast. So it, it informs that decision. And in the alternative, they would have just applied sort of generic evidence on all patients theoretically, but not on, not, not on a trial that included that patient. So why not you know, be able to personalize that evidence? So 
that's how we see ourselves fitting in there. Tell me a little bit about how you're able to personalize that evidence. Yeah, it comes in the form of the way, you know, our system is structured. We're, we're sitting on hundreds of millions of patient records, both at individual institutions and in aggregate. And when somebody asks a question, you know, we don't like need the patient record or something like that. They, they'll ask the question in that form. They'll be like, okay, for, you know, 65-year-old diabetics with a history of, you know, renal dysfunction, you know, I'm worried there's going to be a risk of using an immuno-oncology drug. You know, should I do that? And we then uh, program in the attributes of that patient group based on what they said. So, we, you know, we'll look for that history. That'll determine who's included in our study. And then we'll look at the outcomes of interest, you know, for those therapies and determine, you know, in that example, you know, is there a risk of kidney failure? right? When they're on these drugs and you're learning from patients that look just like that patient in front of you. And it can get hyper specific. I mean, we can get down to like, you know, give me their lab values. Okay. Let's make sure we only include a patient with these labs or it can be more generalized. Like, Hey, you know, we haven't looked at elderly patients here. Let's look at 65 to 75 year olds and look at that as a group. And the whole point is you can iterate quickly, get an interpretable result back and you know, be able to factor that into, into that decision making. So essentially what this is allowing here is, as you said, you have a bunch of patient records, and now I'm interested in patient X, perhaps a 75-year-old female, then in this case, I can maybe perform a query or something of the sort over, let's look at other patients who are 75 years old, who are also female, and then also had perhaps a sepsis condition. And then what happened in those various cases, I can look at the observational evidence for other patients that closely match this patient and then kind of get an idea. Yeah. And, and not just an idea, get a statistically backed answer in the form of an observational research study. So the same things that are being published every day, just the difference here is personalized to your patient and fast, right? It's got to be quick because if you don't meet, you know, a sepsis, I mean, risk is serious. Like if you, if it's going to be weeks and months, you're not going to have the time to factor that in the care decisions. But with us, you get it really rapidly in about a day. How do you think about the question of making sure that for a specific patient population, you are providing an observational study that has enough data to ensure that what you are hoping to do actually makes sense? If I only have one other patient record that I can kind of access, saying for this type of patient with this sort of intervention, I get this outcome. That seems a little bit shaky in terms of something to make a decision from. Yeah, there's a certain percentage of questions uh, that we get that we have to say, hey, there's not enough N here, not enough patients. The statistical methods that we use, you know, like you'll fail the statistical tests on that basis. We're really transparent about all that. So, you know, we'll, we'll give you your confidence intervals, your odds ratios, your p-values, like your e-values, if that makes sense for the question. And we're showing you how many patients were used, what they look like, all their background, all that we call the demographic table. All of that's given, you know, like comorbidity mix, like, you know, what's that look like? And all that's meant to give somebody a really transparent view of what's backing this evidence. Our experience is we're able to answer about 90 to 92% of questions we get with enough patients. And very often, the study we produce is the largest study ever produced on that question. So like compared to the number of patients in clinical trials or, you know, other studies that have been done, like we end up producing the largest study they've ever seen. And 
many of those publish those those reports go on to be published in the literature, which is great. Like that's full circle, right? Like they you know coming back into guidelines. But when we can't answer, oftentimes it's a rare population. Sometimes it's a a specialty area. So like in oncology, if I'm sitting on a an institution. Uh, like a big academic medical center may have millions of patients of records. They may not have enough of this specific oncology patient, you know, the SAGE-4 tumor, you know, treatment-resistant, these genomics. And what we do is we have something we call the Atrical Evidence Network. And these are our partner institutions uh, and and uh, data partners where we can ping the question off to a better data set. So, for example, ASCO Cancer Link has a very large oncology data set. They also enrich it with curation and NLP. So there's additional detail and information in there. And if we get a question that is better fit to be answered on that data, then we will route the question there and bring it back. So by working with us, you're not only getting sort of the speed and consistency of output, but you're also getting access to this network of the right data set when that's appropriate, um, being able to produce that back. One thing that you mention on your site in a few different places is the importance of Atropos clinicians, actual experts who can assist with the whole process of your system. Can you tell me a little bit about their role? Yeah, and, and we can get back into some deep AI stuff here and, and generative AI topics if you want. But the first thing that we did, which I think was a stroke of genius by Saurabh, uh, one of our co-founders, is he thought about how clinicians wanted to consume information. We talked about action steps off of AI, right? And what he realized is like physicians don't have time to use a tool, click a bunch of buttons, like they don't have time. All they have time for is what they do now, which is, you know, asking a peer a question. So like, just like you would in an email or a text or whatever, like, hey, here's what I'm trying to figure out. And so our intake is just a chat right? It's actually, I keep getting called about ChatGPT because like really our interface looks exactly like that. And they're asking a conversational question to us. We keep a human in the loop when we receive that. Um, and our technology stack right now, you know, is sort of a low code approach to being on the craft data queries that cuts out the need for uh, technical people. Basically, you just need people to do the knowledge work of shaping a question. Um, and in doing that, you know, we're making sure that it's a well-structured, well-formed question being asked. Then when the report's delivered back, you know, a clinician is writing the summary on the top. You know, they're, they're the ones saying, here's all this data, but here's what it says. And we actually deliver it as an e-consult. So they'll hop on the phone with a physician, you know, 10, 15 minutes, talk them through the results, make sure they understand it. And we think that's, you know, first of all, we get, you know, rave reviews from users from this. You know, we have really high NPS we have really high reorder patterns. You know, people like it because it feels like they're talking to a peer, but they're getting all this data. We do have some users who sort of order directly themselves and don't need the physician interface. Um, and I think you know more and more folks are interacting with our content libraries that develops. But some portion of physicians will always want the service, and you know that's that's something that's important to us. It's also what allows for reimbursement. Uh, both from the ordering position and for our docs. So it's important to that part of the business model. But, you know, our goal is to be able to serve this evidence wherever it's needed and in whatever delivery form. You know, the console is just one one version of that. One thing you mentioned a few times here is the similarity to a chat GPT-like system and generative AI. That is something I, I wanted to dig into a little bit just because I think that 
this is something our listeners and everybody else are thinking about right now. Generative AI presents a lot of exciting opportunities, but I do have also a coupled set of worries about it. And one of those is things like people taking medical advice from ChatGPT. I think that I've seen around a lot of those mugs, don't confuse your Google search with my medical degree. And that very much feels the case for somebody using ChatGPT as well. And so I'm curious as somebody who is building in this space, how you think about the potential issues with people doing things like that, if you think that's a real concern, and if it is what you think something better might look like that perhaps leverages some of the capabilities of generative AI systems. Yeah, I, I, I have a couple kind of key points on this. Um, I would just highlight to your uh, listeners, uh, go to the Human-Centered uh, Artificial Intelligence Center at Stanford. There's a great blog up that uh, Nigam and Sarab posted that's summarizing some research I'll highlight in a minute. Um, and the title is, How Well Do Large Language Models Support Clinician Information Needs? So you can see uh, some of the research we're putting out about this. But let me give you a couple of key points. So first and foremost, I think we all, and not just in healthcare, but all of us have to acknowledge that the game has changed forever, probably, on search, okay, and on information discovery for consumers and professionals and all the rest. Look at the rise of the use of ChatGPT as a website. People like the experience of conversational search and discovery. And if you're building a company that doesn't consider that user experience change from the Google search of yesterday to the conversational and contextual search of, of chat, GPT, you're behind the times. So I, I think that has shifted. Like I guarantee you today in the, in the US, maybe around the world, somebody printed out a chat GPT response and brought it to their position office. I promise you that happened, right? It used to be the Google search. Now it's going to be this, right? So the, the, the horse is out of the barn, okay, on that. Um, that said, our main point about ChatGPT, which is the basis of what we're trying to do, is that medicine already lacks evidence, right? That's what we're here to do. We're here to produce that missing evidence really rapidly. And if you look at the performance of large language models in healthcare and in general, um, what is it being trained on? It's being trained on the public literature, the public uh, editorial and popular content on the web, right? So if you think about the bias of that, the bias is going to be it's only using that published literature, which we know has holes in it, right? Like we know for sure, like, it, you know, we talked about excluding people from clinical trials. So how could it ever be, um, you know, really that accurate? So the study that um, is in press right now, but the blog I mentioned summarizes is basically we took questions we got from the point of care at Atropo and were able to answer using our real-world data and real-world evidence approach. Um, and we compared our answer to the answer that ChatGPT4 gave. Uh, we also looked at 3.5 and were able to show some of the differences there. And then we checked both answers against the literature, the guidelines. We had experts review it, right? And, you know, the stats that are up there, I'll tell you this, but, you know, Good news, I'd say, for ChatGPT, you know, 91% of the answers they gave were, I guess, in the category of they're not dangerous, right? They weren't outright lies. They weren't, like, just objectively wrong. Um, but, you know, only about 50% matched what uh, we were able to see from real-world data. 
And so a lot of times this would be them saying, hey, there's not enough evidence for this question. Well, we would argue there is, and we can produce that. Um, sometimes it was they sort of not not sort of misquoted or missummarized the literature, but sort of missed some of the context. They got some of it right, but they missed sort of the punchlines. Um, and when you look at stats like that, it's telling us that if you're going to go there to diagnose a patient or you're going to go there to, um, you know, choose a treatment, it's not there. And by the way, how could it be? Because it's being trained on, you know, the publicly available liter- literature, which we know is missing evidence. So part of our play in this world is we want to be a training source, right? We're producing de novo evidence at scale. And, you know, can we feed some of that evidence to large language models in addition to what they might get from the literature, combine it, train it, and be able to produce really great uh, answers? That brings me to the third thing that we're focused on. So again, LLMs mostly today train on uh, literature and, and language and web content. And LLMs themselves are really good at determining, it depends on the model we're talking about, but are good at determining like, hey, should these sequence of words be next to each other? That's like kind of the, the way it does the conversational response piece really well. But what if you could have ChatGPT not ask a, a language question solely, but also ask questions of a database, right? We know that ChatGPT can be used to generate code, right? So what if you could take a conversational question input have it write code, and then have that code query a healthcare database, for instance, and produce a statistically backed answer, right? And something we're very focused on internally is taking that chat-based question, using it to generate uh, our proprietary code we call TQL, which can then be used to query a database, produce out you know, a report like ours as an answer. And I think you know we'll be a player there. I think others will be. But like, just think of a question like, if you ask ChatGPT, you know, what was the infection rate of COVID last month? It's going to go find that from news articles, maybe a press release from the CDC. What if it could query the CDC database and get a statistically backed answer? Like that's super interesting because if you think about the problems with LLMs and, and ChatGPT and bias potentially and, you know, not lack of transparency on citations, it's like, well, let's actually go to the databases. You know what I mean? And I, I think there's a bunch of B2B opportunities there. I also just think, you know, if we could cite it back to source data, you know, then then we're really talking. We're also doing something with this where we're now grading and evaluating data sets for quality and appropriateness for use. We call it our data fitness scoring solutions. There's a couple of measures we use, but think of it like a credit score. So Let's say we have chat, produce code, code writes the database, produce answer with statistical back. You also should get a credit score on there that says how well fit was that data set for this question. Um, and we're, we're super focused on those topics. So to sum it all up, user experiences forever change. Doctors are going to get chat GPT results handed to them in the, in the, the, uh, in the treating room. But... We know that those training materials lack evidence. We think we can generate evidence to help that. And lastly, you know, chat to database, I think it's going to be fascinating to see what happens with that, both in healthcare and in general, but big opportunity there in healthcare. The database augmentation does seem particularly powerful. Wolfram being one pretty clear example of that, just the fact that now you can take a chat GPT system, you can query Wolfram and 
something pretty close to natural language and then actually do math and not have to worry about the fact that LLMs are still not that great at doing math. And so for medicine, I can see that also being a really powerful future direction. Absolutely. Um, and that's the way our system is built. Like we've, what we've done is we've templatized and automated the entire statistical pipeline and the cohorting and query side. So like the part we're working on is getting from chat to that query. And if we can do that end to end, right, you'll be getting, you know, that, that sort of mathematical backed answer, statistically backed answer on the other side, which is what people want. And then, you know, like I said, just make sure we have transparency on provenance bias um, and ultimately, I think, scoring of the quality of that answer. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're super excited about that space. Let's look forward a bit. Tell me a bit about, first, what is next for Atropo? Yeah, so we just announced the Atropo Evidence Network. I referenced it earlier. It's the institutions that are part of our network. They both can ask questions of data in the network. They also um, you know, enable questions to be answered on their data sets. We've added to that the data fitness scoring, right? The credit score for, for data determining, is this data right for this question or, you know, to what degree? Um, where does that go? I, you know, we've started working on clinical trial design. So you think about like, uh, we get questions every day organically from the point of care, but like, hey, is there some place where a whole bunch of questions are sitting we could just launch in here? And the answer to that is clinicaltrials.gov, right? There are millions of questions in there in the form of study designs. And we're in the middle of pre-programming uh, those studies into our system. So let me explain what that might mean, right? Yeah, you might have a question at the point of care about a specific patient and we're ready to answer it. We can answer it quickly. But what if our system became more of sort of a, an OS, right, for evidence generation? I had every trial in trials.gov pre-programmed. When I install at your institution, I'll rerun every study that's ever been done, both requests we've got and also ones that are um, coming from trial designs. And it turns your institutional data asset, right, your EMR asset, into an inside asset overnight. You can go look up the phase four study that's active right now and see how it's performing at your institution. The sort of live evidence, live surveillance, I think is now possible across the cloud infrastructure federated compute and security. So we want to be that that evidence OS or evidence layer on top of that. And I think that just shifts like what's even possible, right? So like think about what I was talking about before, how, you know, physicians when they're deciding what to do, they they look up guidelines, they look up trials, right? And we know that those have gaps and they're limited. Well what if the answer was already live at your institution for every possible patient subgroup? Right. And, you know, instead of having these sort of like global guidelines, everything can be localized and personalized, both to your patient population and to your institution. And by the way, we think this is a global dynamic, right? Like we think the rest of the world is actually, you know, starving for, you know, more of this real world evidence, particularly on their patient population. So more announcements to come from us on the international front and on this sort of scalar observational OS, you know, or evidence OS. Um, and we're super excited about the potential of that. Very exciting. I think my final question then is taking this a little bit more broadly. So we talked about the opportunities for generative AI and hooking that up with medical databases. What are some other directions you're excited about broadly for the intersection of AI and healthcare? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm focused on that action step, right? And as we think about these risk algorithms, what are the places where, um, you know, how, how's that going to be, how's that prediction going to be consumed? So a big uh, trend for healthcare systems is home care. Okay, and really this is about upskilling, um, you know, caregivers, uh, physicians, nurses, and the rest. So how can we create information products that are actionable regardless of where you are? Right. Like if you're inpatient versus outpatient versus home care and can that have the type of exciting impact on care, which, you know, basically means you can get the same care in a home care setting as you might get, you know, in a brick and mortar um, or, you know, or in a virtual clinic that you would get in a major outpatient clinic. And the opportunity for cost savings in healthcare there is dramatic, um, you know, and and not to mention also better outcomes. Right. So. This is the way we deal with, you know, the pressures that exist in the healthcare system is, you know, enabling that that evidence-based care, virtually delivered, upskilling caregivers and, and physicians using things like AI or evidence generation. So I, I think that wave is coming right now. The action step definitely seems to be very important. And I'm excited to see how you and others innovate in that space. Brigham, thank you so much for, for the conversation. It was wonderful talking to you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Great conversation. And that is a wrap, my friends. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, you can subscribe to The Gradient on Substack to receive not just this podcast, but also our articles and newsletters directly to your email. You can also visit us at thegradient.pub, where you'll find all of that as well as more information about The Gradient and how you could even contribute if you're interested. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate your feedback. If you'd like to leave a comment or review, we'd love to know how we can make this series more interesting and informative to you. And with all that, I'll leave you until the next episode.